The media and people are fascinated with celebrity divorces. Stories trend when a breakup is announced. People want to know how much the divorce is costing them, and they swoon over over-the-top alimony orders. Behind every famous divorce is a not-so-famous divorce attorney. Today, I'm speaking with one of the best in the industry. He's represented A-listers and top-level executives, and we are going to dive deep into what divorce looks like when the stakes are extra high. This is a good one, so buckle up. The Happy Even After Podcast. The Happy Even After Podcast. Divorce sucks, but it doesn't need to define you, and it doesn't need to be the end of your story. The Happy Even After Podcast. Meet your host, Renee Bauer, an award-winning divorce attorney, peacemaker, author, and founder of The D Course, an online divorce educational program. She's been doing this work for almost two decades, and she is passionate about helping all women Make it out the other side. The Happy Even After Podcast. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. So today I am here with an experienced celebrity divorce attorney and business owners, celebrities, and trust beneficiaries across California turn to my next guest for assistance protecting their most valuable assets in high-stake divorces. With deep experience in complex family law litigation and premarital agreements, my guest, attorney Chris Melcher, provides tactical representation in the most challenging family law disputes. His clients include A-list celebrities, executives, and tech company founders. He's hired by other family lawyers as a consultant, expert, or co-counsel on significant divorce cases in California. Chris is also an adjunct professor of family law at Pepperdine University School of Law in Malibu. So welcome, Chris. Well, thanks, Renee, for having me on the show. So today we are talking all about expensive divorces and money and businesses and all of those things. Is it harder to settle a case when there's a lot of money? It's so odd because you figure if there's so much money involved, why fight? That it's harder, I think. The cases that scare me the most are the ones where there's not a lot of money where $200 in support is going to make a difference to somebody paying their rent or making, making their bills. To me, those, those cases would scare me to handle. The cases that I'm working on are lots of zeros at the end of those figures. And you would think that they could just, hey, there's enough to go around and that they don't need to fight, but they do. And some of it is because of power and control issues. Others are just because, hey, they, they should get their fair share and we got to fight about that. And what makes the cases go on longer is that these people can afford lawyers. Most people, like if I went through a divorce and I'm charging a lot of money, I can't afford myself. I can't afford my hourly rate if, God forbid, I went through a divorce. But my clients, this is pocket change. And when they're fighting over you know, $100 million or something like that, the cost of going to court is minimal and it's worth it rolling the dice. So that's why these big cases go on so long. It's the personalities and the amount of money at issue makes the lawyer fees insignificant. It's interesting because in Connecticut, my home state, we have a county that is very wealthy in Fairfield County down by Greenwich, on the border of New York City. And those cases 
tend to, it's like an entirely different world in that courthouse compared to the other courthouses in the state. And I think it's for the exact reason that you stated. So do you think that in those cases, it's, you know, we often hear people say like, well, it's the lawyers driving the litigation. They're kind of, they're the ones who see the dollar signs and they're pushing the conflict. Do you think that that's the case or is there something else at play? It can be. I I think that some of that's an excuse because people hire lawyers, they control the lawyers, and especially if it's a sophisticated client. So if it's a business owner, they're used to being sued. They've hired lots of lawyers. They may have a general counsel on staff. So there's no way that that lawyer, the divorce lawyer, is going to be driving anything for that type of client. It's the the out what we call the outspouse, the one that had no control over the finances, who's never interacted with a lawyer before, never hired one for sure, could be manipulated by the lawyer. And that's the risk. And and what I fear for those folks is that they confuse aggression with being effective. And they think like, I'm going to get the nastiest, toughest lawyer out there. And they think that they're being served by that. And they, they see these nasty letters and extreme positions being taken. And, and hey, that could work sometimes, but also it could do a lot of damage. So, so yes, in that setting, the lawyer could drive things into litigation where it didn't need to go to. Yeah, and that, that dog and pony show makes the client feel better and they feel like they have someone fighting for them. And what they really don't know at the other end is that it could be dragging it out causing them to spend more money. So, you know, that's buyer beware of who you hire. Well, that's right. And and so I'm almost always on the in spouse side, the one that has the control of the money. And most of my clients are risk adverse. They don't want to fight. They don't want any of this distraction going on. And early on, they may be willing to pay a very generous settlement to get rid of the case. And it's always hard when we were offering, hey, here's a bunch of money. And the other side says, well, gee, if you're willing to offer that right out the gate, it you must be you know hiding something. And it's, it's so bizarre. Um, but Certainly, once you make somebody angry and poke them enough, if they weren't willing to fight before, they are now, and they'll be willing to spend the money, take it to the mat. So we got to play our hand very carefully and not overplay it. And that that's what I'm seeing with some of the, the aggressive lawyers who tell the client what they want to hear, and but they can't back it up. And all they've done is generated a big bill for themselves, and they really harm the client. All right, so let's talk about this trend of manimony, which is women paying their husband alimony. What's going on there? I mean, we just saw this recently with Kelly Clarkson's divorce. We saw a huge settlement where she was paying her husband like some astronomical amount. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. We we see households that have the the woman running a business, being very successful, making a lot of money, and then the husband staying home and taking care of the children. And that makes perfect sense for that family. And But if they get divorced, there's going to have to continue that type of arrangement where 
one's going to be working and the other's going to be taking care of the children and receiving support. And traditionally or historically, that's been the, the, the man paying support to the woman. But in these other situations, it's reversed and it's natural for that to happen. But it is very difficult for the female client to accept that they would be paying any support to their male partner. And that's understandable. And it's also sometimes difficult for the man to accept support from a woman because these are these are one of the last vestiges of gender bias I think that we have, which is that that men should be the providers and men shouldn't take anything from women. And so we're fighting all against that when we're seeing this so-called manimony. And in the Kelly Clarkson case, we're really highlighting what exists in all forms of alimony, regardless of who's paying it, which is nobody needs $150,000 a month in alimony or $50,000 a month in child support. And it's a really perverse use of the word needs because these are wants and desires. It's an obscene amount of money. And it's what a lot of men have felt for a long time saying, hey, if I'm making millions of dollars a year, we had this big lifestyle, I kind of get it that I'm going to pay support, but this is just an obscene amount of money. And now that we're seeing the gender roles reversed, it kind of highlights what a lot of men have been saying for years. And does that lifestyle factor into that conversation when you're when you're putting dollar signs on it? I mean, looking at someone receiving $150,000 a month, is that the conversation that you're having is why do you need this or why does my ex-spouse need this? Or is it just all relative because there's so much money at stake that, you know, that dollar amount is small compared to what the big picture is? It is relative. So if the couple had a very high lifestyle because there was a lot of money, well, then naturally the support is also going to be high. So there's some logic to it. And every state has different approaches on how they're going to deal with support. In California, it's the most generous place to supported spouses or parents receiving child support. This is very, very high amounts and needs are based not on absolutes. Like some states will say, well, you're going to get support just to make sure you're not on welfare. In California, the measure of of alimony or spouse support is based on the lifestyle that they led during the marriage and the ability of the high-earning spouse to pay. So it's not in any way an absolute, what do you need to survive? There is a rehabilitative aspect to it, like how am I going to get you on your feet here after a lengthy marriage? But it's the goal is not to just say, hey, go to Starbucks and get a job. It's, hey, we had a long marriage. There was a, there was a big lifestyle. There's an ability to pay. So the support's going to be very high. And that's just one of the things that we accept, whether we know it or not, if we're married and divorced in California. And in the Kelly Clarkson case, there was a premarital agreement, and I haven't been able to to lay eyes on it yet, and the court did enforce it. And I assume it says that all this earnings that Kelly had during the marriage, which were substantial, are hers. So when we look at the kind of fairness of this, they were married. All the money that she made during the marriage apparently is her separate property, meaning can't be divided with him. And he's going to get a few years of a ton of support. So maybe on balance, it's not such a horrible thing. They do have children together. They, those children should experience a similar lifestyle when they're with each parent. 
And he's got now plenty of money to kind of recreate that. And he's out of state anyway. But it's a, an example of what not to do. And it was smart that she had the prenup. So certainly if we have a successful person thinking about going into a marriage, we'd want to look at a premarital agreement to limit their exposure. So not that they're going to just kick somebody to the curb and not give them what's fair, but that we don't have these runaway support orders or amounts of property being divided that are just, just obscene. Chris, are you seeing that across the entire state of California, or is that more um, more to where you practice in the LA area? That's a great question, Renee. And and so I'm in Los Angeles County, and obviously there's a lot of wealth here. I handle cases across the state. If there's somebody who's who's very wealthy in other parts of the state, I will handle those cases. If we're in San Francisco, it's going to be similar. But if we're in a rural area like Central California. They don't see numbers like that. And they may have significant wealth. They may own a bunch of farmland and have a big lifestyle, but those courts are not not used to seeing big support orders or attorney fee orders. So we get out to the into the suburbs or rural areas of the state. Things are done a lot different out there uh, than they are in Los Angeles, which is very freewheeling and we're used to, we're just desensitized to these numbers because the cost of living is so high. And we, in downtown Los Angeles, we see these cases all day long. Yeah. So that, that opens up the, the door to my next questions are all about businesses. And when someone is getting divorced and they have a business, how that factors into the division of assets. And you just brought up a farm. And how is that different than someone who owns a tech company? Um, And is it different? So the business is almost like another child to this couple, uh, especially if they started it during marriage, maybe may have worked on it together. Blood, sweat, and tears have gone into this thing. And it's now grown perhaps bigger than, than the couple themselves. And so they care about it and they want to know like, hey, this needs to succeed. Is it going to get destroyed by the divorce itself? Is it literally have to be divided 50-50? Is the couple going to get divorced, but they're going to be stuck in some kind of co-ownership hell where they're going to have to actually run this business together? Is it going to be valued in a way that's so expensive that they can't afford to buy out their partner? Or is it going to be valued so low that one person is going to run away with this business and the other is going to get pennies on on the dollar? So these are big, big issues. They're extremely important. And the lawyer that's handling that has to have the sophistication. And what I've seen and been really surprised about this because I thought, gee, lawyers are smart and they know this stuff. <laughs> no, most lawyers are not good at business. Uh, and Renee, you're, you're a, an exception to this because you are running a business and you, you know this stuff. But a lot of lawyers are basically their first job has been a lawyer and they've been an employee in a law firm. They've never run a business. They've never grown anything. They, they just don't have that sophistication and it's really surprising. And so when, when a client goes and hires this person, we really need to know what is their level of experience dealing with this stuff? Because we see some lawyers, they, they don't know how to read a tax return. They don't need the difference between a corporation and an LLC. And we have to understand the intricacies 
of this stuff and have a good business mind to be able to understand what are the creative ways that this business can be dealt with in a divorce? How can we salvage it? How can we divide it? How can we value it? And so we need somebody with a high degree of, of sophistication to be able to tackle that. Yeah, I mean, not all lawyers are created equal. <laughs> you know, there's there's so many of us out there in that space doing this work and not all are equipped to be tackling those those big issues. So you make such an important point. Question about something you brought up, because I just had someone um, recently ask this question of me, and I'm curious of your take on it. They had a business that was grown together and neither of them wanted to walk away from it or buy the other person out. They both were drawing a salary from it and they wanted to continue to co-own and co-run this business. What are your thoughts on that? I've dealt with that a lot and it's it's turned out in various ways. So sometimes there's there's a kind of maybe two businesses there that maybe one could be spun off and it's if it's a large enough business maybe one division can go with one spouse another division can go with another. If that's not possible they could have a co-ownership arrangement with the two where they're going to run this, but I question how successful that's going to be. If they can't make their marriage work, how are they going to work in business? It's really kind of doomed to fail. So sometimes we'll see a temporary co-ownership structure where it's going to lead to a buyout. and Maybe we, we can't tackle the buyout right now because it's just too expensive. And we're going to basically punt on that and say for the next few years, they're going to run it together. And then we're going to re-examine it. Or we create an option and we say, hey, the first that comes up with $5 million can buy out the other spouse. The other times we've seen is an auction. And so we'll say, hey, um, we're going to do sealed bid and whoever can outbid the other is going to walk away with this business and the other gets the cash. And uh, we've, we've looked at also a sale of the company and that's hard for people to accept, but that may be better. And we'll just say, hey, let's package this up, take it out to the market and see if somebody's going to come and buy these people out. So all of these are on the table. It would be nice if they're continuing to operate it, but you figure in a divorce, what's present is a lack of trust, lack of respect, and a lack of communication. How are we going to run a business together if we don't like and trust and respect each other? We're not. So we could put some guardrails around it. So if it's a corporation, we'll, we'll appoint a neutral third director who would come in and be a tiebreaker. We could also get professional management involved because maybe they want to be involved in, in ownership and they want to have their name on it and continue with this. But we're going to now basically outsource management to a professional team, the COO, CFO, CEO. We're going to hire those people and the spouses are going to stay out of the way, uh, you know, if that's possible. So we, we kind of look at where their objectives are and if they can passively continue to participate in this, great. But if they want hands-on, both of them, they're going to be at each other's throats. So there's going to have to be either a buyout or a sale. And then the question is, it just begs that question, why would you want to be continue to be so entangled with your ex? Like that's the, that's the best part about a divorce is when you walk away, it's like you can have minimal contact, minimal communication. And why do you want to keep yourself present in all of those feelings that you felt all through the marriage, through the divorce and after? Well, and it's, we could say the same thing about kids. Like, hey, 
You know, we could avoid a big custody dispute if we just gave sole custody to one parent and the other one just walked away. But we can't. We're never going to do that to a child. And and a business, and I know, and I'm sure it's the same with you, it's like you spend your weekends and nights and putting everything into your business and to think like, wow, I'm going to have to walk away from this or start over again. I mean, sometimes I would, I would actually love to do that. But the <laughs> mostly though, I love my business and it's like, I want to continue with this. And, it, and if I had to give it up or be fighting with, with my business partner, it would just be really awful. So these are the risks, though, that we have when we get into a marriage or we start a business with somebody. We, we think about all the great stuff that can happen, but we also have to think about exit strategy. And it, that could be done with a prenup or more likely with a co-ownership agreement that they could have, whether it's a shareholder agreement or operating agreement, that if it's well-constructed, we could say, hey, if there's ever a business divorce, this is how the ownership is going to be dealt with. And management rights are going to be divided. But again, most of these agreements don't cover that. Are you seeing a trend for postnups at all? I see people ask for postnups. I've written a lot of postnups. I've had very few of them signed. So I think if you're already married and you're you're thinking about real, you know, altering your property rights with your spouse mostly you're in trouble and the other party's unlikely to ever sign something like that. The only times that I've seen it succeed is when the generation above one of the spouses is about to make some enormous gift. So it's it's the, the grandfather or the father, or whatever, it's saying, hey, I want to give my son or daughter a whole bunch of money but I want to make sure it keeps in my bloodline and there's a condition attached to that gift. Hey, son or daughter, you go get a postnup with your spouse to ensure that that person's hands are off this big pile of money or I'm not giving it to you. And then usually they'll be like, yeah, sure, I'll sign whatever because they figure better to have it in spouse's name, their spouse's name, than not. But other than that circumstance, I usually see a postnup as a prelude to a divorce. Do you believe that on the other side of your divorce can be a life you freaking love? What if I told you that to live a happy life, you first have to believe you deserve it? How can you possibly create a life you love if you don't believe you are worthy of it? Let's get you set up to start believing in you. Just text the word BELIEVE to 411-321 to receive a free Believe Yourself Badass Guide. In this guide, we talk about power statements and how they can change your life. So stop what you're doing and text BELIEVE to 411-321. See you on the inside. So I have um, I have to ask you about California specific because it's oddly enough I think my second highest number of viewers is from California. It's Connecticut and New York are I think pretty much tied, but then California we have a huge listener base. So what's the state of the courts right now in COVID in California? Well, they're doing a lot better. Um, our technology in LA Superior Court and, and most of the courtrooms in California were antiquated and they'd had no video appearance uh, capabilities. 
And after the shutdowns, when they reopened, they, they did put video appearance technology in most of these courtrooms, which has made it fantastic for me because I don't have to bill clients for travel waiting time. I had a recent hearing. We were on for six minutes. So it was 0.1 hours was, was, as opposed to four hours to go in court and wait. So this is a huge benefit to the clients. Now, we do have problems with some public access, and I'm, I actually filed a request on behalf of USA Today in the Britney Spears case for media access because the courts have treated media and public access a little bit different than what it is for parties and attorneys. So we'll stay tuned and see how that works. But the, the, the remote access is supposed to remain, and I think it works pretty well. I do think if somebody's going through a divorce, you might think somebody's getting an advantage if they go in person, and that could be a bit true. So I'm hoping that this will last. And if both parties say, hey, I'm going to be on video, you're going to be on video, at least we're on an equal playing field. If somebody's there in person and the other's there remote, well, maybe you're getting subtle cues from the judge or maybe your video feed's not working on the other side. So, you know, these are things that are going to have to be sorted out. But the, the access to justice in allowing people to be represented for a very low cost, so your attorney's only charging for time on the, on, on the hearing, is significant and I think outweighs those concerns about being able to see the judge's, you know, eyes in person. Are you seeing people settling their cases because the alternative is if they get trial dates, it's a year or longer out and people just kind of getting bullied into signing an agreement? Yeah, we, we also get worn out. And, and that's the thing that's, that's really hard for clients to understand is that legal time does not operate in human time. These things can take years. The courts are backlogged. There's, so we could take several years to get to a resolution in court. And then there's all these temporary hearings that happen where we're going to have custody disputes and support issues and attorney's fees allocated in a series of what are called temporary hearings during this couple-year period, and it's really a death by a thousand cuts. So it's beneficial if the client goes to uh, a knowledgeable lawyer at the beginning to say, look, this is what this issue really is about. This is what's involved, how much it's going to cost to litigate, and more importantly, how long it's going to take and the emotional toll that that's going to have on you to go through your life on hold, fighting with somebody for two or three years. So that has to be put into the cost-benefit analysis. And it can bleed the other side out dry. And sometimes people use that tactically to get an advantage because they figure, I'm going to leave you in this horrible position for years until you agree to pay. It's really an awful, awful broken system. And the more that you know about that before you go into it, the better. And to see how those advantages could work towards each other, whether it's delay or accelerating it somehow. So I, I really do not like that. And, and that's that's a thing as a lawyer is that we go into these cases knowing all this and then assuming that our client does. And they have no way of knowing. They're, they're thinking like, hey, I'm going to go to one hearing. I'm going to tell the judge this person cheated on me and is an awful person. And then they're going to, like a fairy godmother, come out and say, you are, are the good person and the other is the bad person and award me money. I'm done. No, that never happens. And so I think I am 
I am trying to disabuse myself of all of these assumptions and start at the beginning and explain it to the clients so the client understands what's in my head and then we can have a conversation and, and deal with informed consent to how this is going to go forward. Yeah, it's so important. And I think that there's, you know, there's so many lawyers that don't do that. And that's the disconnect and clients aren't informed and they're not educated about the process. And then they're angry and they're frustrated. Um, We see it all the time. So it's, you know, it's so important just to get on the same page. Um, And it's for listeners out there, when you have a lawyer, it's important to ask the questions you don't know the answers to. Like, don't just assume that your lawyer is going to handle everything for you and it's out of your hands. Like, it's your responsibility to ask questions and to be informed and to make sure that you know that you're comfortable with the information that you know when you understand it all. And most lawyers are happy to spend that time and talk to you and explain it to you if you ask. Yeah, and that's that's something that's super important if you're looking for a lawyer is you don't want somebody talking down to you. And it's 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 similar to a doctor, which you probably have more experience seeing doctors and, and understanding who you like or not. But they need to be able to explain things and not just say like, hey, I'm the doctor or hey, I'm the lawyer and I'm going to decide for you. No, that's not the way it works, that you are in charge as the client and you're entitled and need to know what's in that lawyer's head. Because honestly, this stuff, I mean, as a lawyer, we we deal with a couple rules that we have to memorize. And then most of the other stuff is just an application of common sense and strategy. So there's no right or wrong answers to it. So once I can kind of get the client up to speed on what I know about procedure and process and rules, then the client's judgment about some of this, like, hey, should we do A or B, is just as good as mine. I I have no better predictive skills than anybody else. So I want to get the client up to speed so we can have a conversation and then the client can decide because it's their money, their life, their kids, not mine. But we do see lawyers are very paternalistic and saying, hey, client, I know best. Well, actually, you don't know best. You don't know anything, lawyer. And that's the one you don't want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, such good advice. So, Chris, I have to ask you, what is the most expensive divorce you have ever handled? <laughs> well, we have seen over $10 million in fees on one divorce, and that's the most expensive that, that I've been involved in. And so these these cases can go on, like we said, for several years. We've had bills in my office for several hundred thousand dollars per month in attorney's fees. And if somebody's paying one side $200,000 a month, they're probably paying the other side's fees $200,000 a month. So that's 400 grand out per month just in attorney's fees. And then they're paying support, like if it's a Kelly Clarkson thing, maybe of a couple hundred thousand dollars. And now we're at 600,000 out the door per month. And we haven't even settled a case. Yeah, and they're probably not happy at all. (laughs) <laughs> so these are these are you know gigantic things and and it's like I know people are listening to this it's like oh the lawyers are are grinding this and and perpetuating it but again if we're talking those kind of dollars it's 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 like I am a service provider. I am similar to the gardener for these folks. <laughs> you know, I follow instructions and do what I'm told and give my advice bluntly. But um, when you're at those levels, it's not the lawyers typically driving it. It's, it's the parties, like we talked about earlier. It's the parties driving it. And it, it's an obscene amount of money for sure. What about the highest alimony order that you've seen? 
So highest alimony, my client paid $550,000 a month in alimony, long marriage, lots of, lots of money, but um, that's a major. lot, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a major. <laughs> so <laughs> before I get to my final question for you, where can we find you? How can we connect you? And any of my California listeners who need an attorney, how can they find you? Well, sure. So you can just Google Christopher Melcher. All my info will, will come up there. I'm also really active on Twitter and my handle there is CA underscore divorce. So I'm I'm just like interacting with folks. So if you you know you have legal questions or whatever, you could just you know, shoot me an email or, or go and tweet it. And um, so I'm, I'm all over there. I just, I just like engaging with folks on legal issues. I also have a YouTube channel. So you could just go into YouTube and search Christopher Melcher and you'll see that. And what I'm doing there is talking about legal issues like Free Britney. Uh, I mentioned on Kelly Clarkson a bit. So I'm making legal, ish, legal explanations of, of these big issues and trying to do it in, ex, in understandable terms uh, so people can understand more about the law and the story kind of behind these cases. Yeah, and you can also just turn on Entertainment Tonight and probably have you on there as well talking about the latest celebrity divorce, which brings me to my final question. Why do you think we as a society are obsessed with celebrity divorces? Because people love to talk about them. They do. There's a there's so much interest in it and there's some lessons to be learned because most celebrities do not fight in a divorce because it's toxic to their brand. And they're, they have learned something that the rest of us have not, which is settle your case. Don't put yourself, your kids, your family through this, even though I'm sure they have just as much hard feelings as the rest of us do. I know that for a fact. And they wanna fight because they're being attacked and they're like, I wanna fight. But they restrain themselves because most of them, there are examples like Brangelina, but other than that, there's very few examples of celebrities who have gone to the mat in court publicly in a divorce. So they are, in a way, a role model for us. Now, why we are so interested in it is because they're celebrities and we like to see these obscene numbers. And it's like, really? Somebody spends $100,000 a month on their lifestyle? How's that possible? And we can look at the numbers and like how that adds up. And it's like, or gee, do they really make $10 million a year? We want to know about their houses and all this stuff. And it is interesting, and in California, these are all public proceedings, so we have a right to know about that as the public. But for me, what I'm looking at, and I'm very cautious because I do a lot of legal commentary on these cases, is that we're dealing with two human beings, and more importantly, their kids. And how awful it is for any, any child to have their parent go through a divorce, number one. But could you imagine if you're that child, and now every detail is being in the press, and your friend's are seeing it. And so I, I am very protective of that and the commentary that I do just don't even talk about the children. And I wish there were more protections about that because it is, it is very, very rough, I'm sure, to be a child of a celebrity in a, in a, in even if the parents have a good relationship. But when it's a breakdown, it is all out there and the kids get hurt. And I just wish that the media was more mindful and protective of the harm that's done to these kids. Yeah, absolutely. So here you have it. 
Chris, you clearly practice with integrity and that just comes through in that last statement right there. So, so appreciate that. Um, you know, there, there are so many good divorce professionals really trying to help families and not make it worse. And Chris is one of them. So if you're in California, definitely reach out to him. Um, Chris, thank you so much for this, this interview. So insightful. And I really am grateful for your time. Well, thanks, Renee. That's a wrap. Link up with us at MsReneeBauer.com. Remember to rate and review and share with anyone you think might find this episode helpful. You can change your story and live happy even after. Oh.